start this morning with a, a, an interesting question for you. Don't put it up yet uh, back there, but if you, some of you know me, you know how much I just love for people to come to my door and ring the doorbell and try to sell me something. You know, that's just the, like the highlight of my life. Uh, those of you who don't know me, uh, that's a very sarcastic statement because it makes me absolutely crazy when someone comes to my door, particularly someone telling me that they're in the neighborhood doing something for my other neighbors, so therefore I must have the same need that they do. Uh, and, and they really get me whenever they get to talking about the bug guy. Now, I have had the same exterminator uh, at my, uh, my of the two homes I've owned in Katy over the last almost 20 years. I've had the same exterminator for the entire time. And his name is, uh, is Angelo, not that Angelo, but a different Angelo. And he has become a friend to me. And so whenever he comes by, um, he just reminds me that he's going to come on by. But he's, I, I tell him, just walk on in whenever he's ready to go and do whatever. But Angelo and I are buddies. We're friends. And so when someone comes to my door and tells me that my neighbors are infested with something, I just immediately go to the place and say, well, it's because they don't have an Angelo. If they had an Angelo, they wouldn't have a problem. But, of course, that salesman that comes to my door, their first thing is to remind me that because uh, my neighbors are infested, I'm in danger. Right. And so uh, and then they start telling me what they can do for me and how much it costs and all these other things uh, that, that it costs for them to provide the same services that Angelo, my friend, provides for me uh, quarterly. Right. And they're trying to get me to break this relationship with Angelo uh, for a, a complete stranger, someone that I don't know. Uh, and so they, they, they don't understand that it's not just about the services and the fact that he keeps me bug free. It's that Angelo has become a friend to me. And it's going to take a whole lot. I mean, in fact, they're not going to be able to convince me to leave Angelo. He's going to have to convince me to leave him. Does that make sense? He's going to have to do something to violate my trust. It's kind of like when West Virginia continues to, to uh, change the schedule on their games, like the one that's supposed to be played today, and they canceled it already. I mean, I don't know if y'all saw that or not. Did you see that, Foster? I'm just kidding. It didn't do it. But, but, the, but all of us have some sort of sports thing or some sort of relationship, right? Like, I used to be a big sports fan, and i got to be honest, this past year, 2020, has really kind of shaped me a little bit. Uh, at the first hand, it just kind of messed with my, my mind on some things, but what it really kind of said to me was, you know what, you spend a lot of time watching a lot of sports when you could be redeeming that time differently. And so my initial uh, reaction was one thing, but now I've kind of changed and going, you know what, I think I just want to redeem that time. But I don't know about you, if you're a sports fan at all, you love them when they're winning, but when they're not winning... You can break that relationship pretty easily, right? Those bums, those no-good bums. Why would I waste my time cheering for a losing team? Does anybody have anything like that? What's that? Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys. That's, we're talking about sports here for a minute, not the Cowboys, okay? Yeah, my father raised me right. I'm not a Cowboys fan, and I'm proud of it. Oh, goodness. So let me ask you this for a second. Whether you're a sports person or anything else, whatever the case may be, here's the question I want to ask you this morning. I want to ask people at home to, to answer this too. You can make a comment. If you want to log in online and say hello to our friends that are watching from home. But I want to ask you this right here is what is the breaking point into changing who you do business with or associate with? What is the breaking point that says, okay, I'm done with this partnership. I'm done with this business transaction. I'm done with doing whatever, being around, or even let's take this to a whole new level. And this may get a little bit personal, but at what point do you decide in a relationship with somebody else, whether that be a friend relationship, a work relationship, a marriage relationship, that you just say, this is my breaking point. I've drawn the line. I'm done. Do you have that in your life, in your world? Just think about that for a second. If you want to log in online or talk amongst yourselves, Feel free to do so for just a moment while you think about that question. What is the point? Do I have a line by which enough's enough and I'm done with this?
ask for a time of sharing. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. It's kind of like Festivus at church, right? We're going to celebrate that with the air and some grievances. That's how it's going to begin. You know, believe it or not, each and every one of us would actually have some line by which we'd, we would say, I, I, I would go up to this point, but at this point I'm, I'm breaking off this relationship and it's done. And sadly, what that tells us is that relationships, a lot of them, are very transactional in nature. They're, they're, they're based upon what I can get or what I can give in that relationship. And once that agreement, once that threshold for me has been violated or has not been met, once my expectations, which, by the way, I probably didn't share with whoever that person was, once they didn't meet the expectations that they don't know that they're supposed to meet, I'm done with them. Now, just on an aside, before we get too deep into this, I want you to understand that love never says, I'm done. Love never says that. There is nothing about a loving relationship that you actually say, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm over. Love does say, I have to set some boundaries. Love does say you can't continue to hurt me this way. Love does say that, that I can't condone your behavior and, and still be your friend and be in close proximity with you, but that doesn't mean I'm completely done with you. However, if we're perfectly honest, we all have those I'm done relationships. We all have those. And, and, and I wanted to speak directly to some of you right now this morning because we're going to hit on a topic that's going to be very familiar to you. And I want you to hear me clearly on this because I've said this before and I will continue to say this again. Divorce is not, is not the sin that keeps people out of heaven. It's an awful, terrible thing. It is a tragedy whenever a marriage breaks apart. It is not what God planned, but it is absolutely a reality in your world, many of us in this church right here, right now. And I know that. My wife and I both come from divorced households. It was one of the things that, that frightened us whenever we, we first started dating and got married because we didn't want to be a statistic because we know statistically those that come from divorced households have a higher rate of that. But I want you to hear me clearly on this this, this morning before we go too much further into this. Is divorce is not the unpardonable sin. There is freedom and redemption from Christ in this. It is not how God desired it to be, but it is the reality in humanity. And a lot of the reality in that humanity is because we have too many transactional relationships. And marriage, unfortunately, is one, not just in these United States, but throughout the world has been throughout the test of time. They have found more parchments of certificates of divorce than they have found copies of the Bible in its original languages. I want you to understand that this has happened for a long time. Jesus himself dealt with that. And so this morning, we're going to dive into part of that. And I want you to hear me clearly on this. If you are a divorced person and a remarried person or just a divorced person, God does not love you any less. There is forgiveness for that. There is hope in that. And there is new life in Christ beyond that. And please, please, please hear me clearly on that. My heart breaks for you in that situation just as much as yours does too. Because I have never met a divorced person, not one, who said, if I could have figured out how to make this work, I would have. But to be honest with you, I probably should have never married that person, and I'm better now that I'm not married to them. Most people who have been divorced, especially those who have been remarried, would agree with that statement, those that I've spoken with. So hear me clearly this morning. I'm going to speak clearly to you, but I clearly want you to know God loves you, and I do too. And we're not going to hold that over your head. But you do need to know that God speaks of this. Tim Keller is, is one of my favorite authors. He's a great pastor. He speaks a lot about these transactional relationships. He actually wrote a blog about this, and he spoke about covenant relationships. And that's how we get into the conversation of marriage. And Tim Keller actually made this quote. I want to share it with you this morning. He says, Such relationships last only as long as the vendor meets your needs at a cost acceptable to you. If another vendor delivers better services or the same services at a better cost, you have no obligation to stay in a relationship to the original vendor. 
In consumer relationships, it could be said that the individual's needs are more important than the relationship. Does that describe some of those I'm done relationships that you've had? Does that make you want to change who your exterminator is? Does it make you realize and understand that that we are still in a world that is bound by relationships? That's what's made this whole quarantine thing so very challenging is that even the people we don't like, we'd like to be around. We'd like to be in proximity with them because we're built for relationship. We're built to be in community. We're built to be around people, even those that we don't particularly like. If for no other reason, we miss the transactions of those relationships. What Keller is talking about here and what I want to share with you this morning is that we have to move past these transactional relationships because in the book of Malachi, where we're going to find ourselves this morning in Malachi chapter 2, as we're continuing through this series of the king is coming, in the book of Malachi, this is exactly what Malachi, the messenger, that's what his name means, is saying to the people that you have essentially entered into a transactional relationship with your creator God, and he's had enough of that. That is not the relationship that he made you for. That is not the, the relationship he desires to have with you, but yet you have entered into a transactional relationship with him because at some point the people are basically saying, God, when you begin to do what you're supposed to do and behave the way you're supposed to behave and give to me the things that I deserve, then I'll start honoring you the way that I feel like you're worthy to be honored. And that is absolutely upside down and backwards and wrong. Absolutely. And so God sends his messenger, Malachi, to come and speak to the people. And back and forth we've seen between the people uh, and, and between God, there's these complaints and counter complaints. And there's these questions, well, how have I done this? Well, you've done this. And we're going to find ourselves continuing that conversation this morning. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn with me to, to Malachi chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 10. And we're going to talk more about what these transactional relationships look like here in Malachi time. But I think we very easily could find those in our time today as well. And so let's read together uh, uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. Uh, We're going to put it on the board up there. If if you don't have it, it's going to be on your screen as well. It says this, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loved by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord above him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? It is because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. You may want to underline that because we're going to talk about that in a second. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? God and the people are having this back and forth, and he is saying, listen, you have continued to be in these relationships that I have told you not to be in. And one of the first things he told 
the chosen people of God, the Israelites, when they walked into the promised land, was he says to wipe out all of these people who worship foreign gods, take all their high places down and destroy them, and remove them utterly from the land by which I have given you. And they didn't do it. They just simply didn't do it. And in time, what they ended up doing was those high places were still there, these altars to these false gods, and not only did they begin to accept this idol worship, they began to participate in this idol worship. And one of the ways that they were convinced to do so was that the men would marry women who worshipped these false gods. And that was against the covenant that God made with Abraham very early on, saying, I will be your God and you will be my people, and I alone am to be worshipped. And right now, they're in this place saying, okay, we're back in the promised land after we've been exiled for doing all these terrible things we did for all those 268 years, for the kingdom being divided between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and then we got exiled and kicked out of our own land, this promised land, and we're back here, but we're really not prospering the way we want to. Things aren't going the way we hoped they would go. And so because we're in this transactional relationship with God, We just really don't see the point that God's getting all fussy about. Why is he so upset about that? And God is bringing them back to a covenant relationship of saying that you have committed adultery against the wife of your youth. Because it was a common practice during this time that these men were divorcing these women because they wanted a younger model. Bottom line, not much has changed in 2,000 plus years. They wanted a different one. They wanted a wife that they could control differently or do whatever. Whatever the case may be, they had enough of this transactional relationship and decided that they're just going to trade this one in. Now, here's what happened during that time whenever someone would get divorced, and it happens in today's time as well. This is why society so much needs to look at divorce so much differently. These women, and possibly even mothers at the time, they would be single and would have no one's protection over them. And that means that they could very easily be economically in bad shape someone would have to watch out for them someone would have to care for them and that would put an undue burden upon the state or the government or in this case the church the the, before it was called a church by the way the people of god who should be watching out for one another and because they looked at this covenant relationship between one man and one woman and it was torn apart it was ripped to shreds they now had to side with someone and guess who had a voice during that day and guess who did not the men had a voice during that day And so they were able to pass these things along. Now, before you're wondering how could this be possible, I want to remind you what happened last week. The people were taking these unworthy offerings before the priest. And the priests were saying, yeah, we'll take them. And as long as they were bringing unworthy offerings to the priests and the priests were taking those, they were representing the people falsely before God and they were representing God falsely before the people. And so this is how this rampant behavior continues to go on. And what God is calling them to account on is this, is that marriage is not just something that two people stand in front of a priest and do. Marriage is a covenant that binds an entire community. And the purpose for marriage, one of the purposes, and I want to be clear on this, one of the purposes for marriage is just what he said, godly offspring. Now, some of you are over the age of 40, some of you are over the age of 60. And if you're in those categories particularly, you may have found yourself saying, I just don't understand this younger generation. These kids just don't get it. Anybody in that that range? I'm over 30, so I'm close, okay? These kids just don't get it. This generation of people, they're just growing up poorly. They don't understand that. Who taught them that? Who taught them not to be faithful to the wife of their youth? Who taught them not to honor God and to worship God and to stand before him honorably? Who taught them not to honor God's word and not to read it? Who taught them to tear apart that, that society? 
they didn't just come up with this on their own, even though I'll give them a lot of credit. Someone is instructing them just like someone's instructing us. And they're buying into that. And there's no better instructor than mom and dad. And mom and dad are watching their society tear apart, and they're condoning these things happening because they're breaking a covenant relationship. Now let's go back to a covenant relationship for a moment. Because this is a central ideal in this, this book of Malachi, but it's a central ideal to all of us. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve, the very first one, when they sinned against him, and they're walking around the garden, hiding themselves because they're naked. God asked one of the greatest rhetorical questions of all time, who told you you were naked? They didn't have a clue about that. They were not ashamed of their nakedness prior to sin entering into the world. And when they said, well, the serpent did this, and they went back and forth, and God said, this is how childbirth's going to affect you, and this is how the man and the wife and the husband relationship are going are to grind against one another because one's going to try to control the other, and they're no longer going to be in right partnership. We back up to where it said a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And that one flesh idea comes into play whenever there is intimate sexual activity between a husband and a wife. It's designed to be that way. Now, I could take this to a new level, but moms and dads, I didn't warn you about this, so I'm going to stop there. But I want to tell you clearly that there were two covenants made there. One was in the purity and the sanctity of the marriage bed. And the other was when God told Adam and Eve that they had to leave the garden and he shed the blood of an animal and covered them with the skin. And so in any covenant, in any covenant, it is always secured by the shedding of blood. Always. And because that, when an animal particularly was used in a covenant, they would cut the animal in half and the blood would be there. And the ideal was that if either of us violated this covenant, let what happened to that animal happen to me. Now, there's only one covenant that was virtually lopsided, and that was the one that God made with Abraham, where God crossed through there and said, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will be the father of many nations. And because he said those things, God said, I'm going to hold up my end of the covenant. And it was not a transactional relationship. It was a covenantal relationship. And it said that more important than anything that you can get out of this or I can get out of this is that we're going to preserve the relationship. That that may mean I take a couple of lumps here or there. That may mean that I lose face on this or that. But the covenant relationship is so important that I will do anything to maintain this relationship. Anything at all. And when one person violates a covenant relationship, it creates a big problem for everyone watching this. And this is what's happening during Malachi's time. Is that the people are questioning God's love for them because they're still thinking transactionally, not covenant. They're still thinking how could we possibly be honoring this God? Because after all, if God really loves us, why does evil exist in this world and how long shall the wicked prosper? You ever ask that question? The people actually are coming to a place to say that because God allows wickedness and evil and all these things to continue to happen, he must be on the side of evil. Now I want you to think about that for a second. An all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God who spoke everything into existence, who himself is love, apparently agrees with evil, apparently condones evil, and apparently uses evil because if he didn't, then it wouldn't exist. Now, you understand whose standards those are, right? Those are man's standards, not God's. And so here we are looking at a, a holy God that we don't understand and applying our standards to him because he's not acting the way we think he ought to be acting. And we're busy seeing this and justifying this through the transactions of our relationship. And this is an old argument that's been going on for a long time where people have constantly 
question the validity and the holiness of God because evil exists. Because I'm allowed to make a bad decision, God must therefore be okay with that. And we talk ourselves into that. And take it a step further, we go before the priest, we offer him an unacceptable sacrifice, he makes it on our behalf, and we keep on sinning, so therefore the representative of God has said it's okay, and so therefore God must be okay with that. Do you see how this gets really convoluted and messed up quickly? Because this is not God's desire for any of us. We have a covenant relationship with him that for those of us who have accepted that Jesus is one and the only son who died on a cross for us and was resurrected, there was a covenant in blood made that day on the cross for you and for me. And to continue to treat God as a transactional figure in our lives is to dishonor him. And it's to put up with all kinds of evil in this world for the wrong reasons. One of the most damaging statements is how they broke their covenant with God. And God uses marriage over and over throughout the Bible to explain to us why it is so important for one man and one woman to be joined forever and ever and for that relationship to be solid and holy before God. Because in a day and age then and now, whenever a relationship like that was nothing more than transactional, then all I have to do is decide that my needs are not being met and I'll go cash in and find somebody else. And there's, it's an easy progression it's an easy progression. And by the way, church, we're not any different than the rest of the world when it comes to what those transactional relationships look like and what the divorce rate looks like. It's the same in the church as it is outside of the church. And that breaks God's heart. The difference being is that here, hopefully, you don't just find that your sin has been condoned. You find that God offers you forgiveness and grace and hope so you can move on with your life. Because this is not what he has for you to continue to live in shame and guilt and all those other things. That's what a bad transaction goes through. That's what buyer's remorse looks like. When we truly have a covenant relationship with Jesus, we don't get buyer's remorse. We are convicted of our sin and we trust him to see us through this. And he does. But in Malachi's day, they didn't have that. And they were so busy questioning God about who he was not that they forgot to realize who he was because they were outside of a covenant with him. Look with me. Uh, I've got another passage here that I really like that Tim Keller also said in this argument. He says, Today, we stand connected to people only as long as they're meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. We all have a line. We're all okay of what people can and can't do to or for us. When we cease to make a profit, that is when relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we're getting back, then we cut our losses and drop the relationship. This has also been called co-modification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships, and so the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture. We have an issue today where asking someone to commit to something is a big ask. More so, asking someone to commit to something beyond tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now or for the rest of our lives, say, till death do us part. That we have let covenant leave the language of the day and it's lost its value and its meaning. And so how many relationships do we truly have that we have invested in so much that we want them to last until death indeed does us part? Because we're so transactional in the people that we come to, once we're not getting our needs met, as, as Keller says, we cut our losses and we move on to the next best thing. And I don't know about you, but I bet many of you could probably very easily tell me that the grass is not greener. It's not. And sometimes the things we struggle through and we fight for and we make work because we have to, ought to, or want to, 
the things that we desire for our life that is good, that is from God, that's not always easy, those things are worth fighting for. I remember many years ago, Amanda and I had just gotten married, and we were at a, a, a young married class, uh, I think it was a Christmas party, actually. And there was uh, several young marrieds just like us. Some of them had gotten pregnant before marriage. They decided to get married. They were, and so we had this group of people here, and the, the ladies were talking about different things. And they said something about, uh, about divorce, and there was a young couple. They just weren't going to make it. They rushed into it. They let their circumstances buy into all this, and they made this decision. They weren't sure, and all the ladies were talking about this. And, and Amanda said something to the effect of, well, John told me if I ever left, take everything with me. There was no coming back. And they were like, what? He What? And then she went on to explain this and said, yeah, what he said was, if it's not worth fighting for, don't even try. But I'd rather you stay here and fight it out. Let's get this right. And let's work through this together because we made a commitment for the rest of our lives. And this one little fight, as big as it may feel right now, it's not going to end us. We're going to keep having this fight. It did not stop the ladies from that church looking at me funny for the next year or so. I mean, I'll just be honest with you. We put a line in the concrete and said, listen, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. God put a line in blood that said, listen, I will love you unconditionally. I will continue to be your God, but you cannot treat me so transactionally. You cannot cut your losses with me when things aren't going your way. Because let's be honest, if we, were, if we were to take up that mindset, 2020 would say, let's go. I'm done. There's no way God really exists. There's no way he really loves us if, we, if we're going to let this stuff go on in our life. And that's not true. We need to know and understand his love for us even more so. But look how we pick up this argument in chapter 3. Turn with me in Malachi chapter 3. This, I think, is a great, great way for us to understand how God responds to this complaint. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of the wages, who have oppressed the widows and the fatherless and deprived the foreigners among them, you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. God answers to the people in this, in this passage, and he says, first of all, I'm going to send my messenger, and he's actually talking about Malachi in the, in the present. He's talking about John the Baptist in the near future, and he's talking about the divine messenger of Jesus Christ, who will come, and he will bear witness to God and to the holy relationship that God wants to have with his people, and he will make a way for all people to have that relationship with them, and he will act as a judge, and he will be a purifier, first to the Levites and to the priests and to God's people, those who are covered and washed clean by the covenant blood of Jesus. And he will refine them because he loves them. And he loved them so much that he sent them warning after warning after warning after warning after warning after warning. And yet the people said, I'm not getting my needs met. It's not you, God. It's me. You're just not doing it for me. I have to be honest. I've heard this conversation before. I've heard other pastors have this conversation. I've had people tell me this too. You know, John, I'm just not really getting anything out of your teaching. Great. That's awesome. 
I'm not here to give you anything out of my teaching. I'm here to direct you to the truth of God's word. And if your relationship with him is not right, I could really care less what you think about me. I really don't care if you like my preaching or not. If you're not going to bother to put your nose in the book and hear from the God who loves you, I can say anything I want up here and tickle your ears, and I will lead you straight to a reality called hell. That's not what God has called me to do. And so if I'm not doing it for you, praise God for that. Because I have learned in my 44 years of life, I'm not really that good at pleasing people. I've actually made a game out of it. So just this morning, I'm trying to figure out who I can upset. The, no, I'm not going to do that. God answers back to the people, and he says, listen, I've been warning you. I've been warning you. I've been calling out to you. I've been trying to bring you back around. In some ways, it almost seems as if God is saying, I'm hearing your logic, but it's completely illogical. I, I hear your lips are moving, but... but I, I'm not sure I really want to listen to what you're saying because everything you're saying, I mean, I can just imagine, if you'll allow me the opportunity to, to have a little conjecture, that the people in Malachi's day had a whole lot of I and me statements. Well, well God, I'm just not getting this. Or, or, or God, I, I, this just doesn't please me. This, just, this whole worshiping God thing just doesn't seem to be paying off. I mean, you know, my dad struggled and things were hard for him and he tried to worship God. I mean, he brought this... I mean, it was a lame animal, but he brought what he could, you know, and the priest took it. And so if the priest blessed it, it must be good. Because after all, they're God's spokesperson. Because I don't really have to live a holy life as long as the priests aren't living a holy life, but they're going to live a holy life for me too. And so at some point you get in this wrapped up, messed up world and just go, I don't know how I got here. I don't know why things are as bad as they are. If maybe I could just talk to God, but since I can't talk to God because I don't have an acceptable offering or because I don't have what I need to, or the priest, I can't go talk to him because I can't lay my things out in front of him because he can't talk to God. He's not a good person. There's no hope for me. What am I going to do? I can just imagine that during their time, they were frightened to a point to where they got apathetic. You ever get to that place? To where you just finally get to a place and say, you know what? I just don't feel like I can fix this, and so I'm going to go full steam ahead right down this, this train wreck of life, or I'm just going to just go do my own thing because apparently there's no consequences. Because if God really existed and he really loved me, he wouldn't let evil exist. He wouldn't let it thrive. He wouldn't let it prosper. And that is not the case. Far too often today, especially in a day where we're so connected by so many things, we are judging God's goodness based upon what he does or doesn't do with or for or to someone else. And that's transactional. It's not covenant. What we ought to be looking at is what God has done for me and how our relationship is solidified to the blood of Jesus Christ and how my relationship with God counts upon who Jesus is in my life, not what someone else does or doesn't get away with. That's transactional. That's not covenant. The king is coming, and Jesus is telling them that I'm going to be the answer to all these things, and the king is coming, and we've got to learn to persevere. We have to learn to look past all of these transactional relationships that we have in our own life, particularly those that, 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 that wrap around our faith somehow, some way, and are so disjointed in what we're doing. We have to stop looking at what God allows someone else to get away with and start spending more time with Him. That's why whenever we break those covenants, when we get away from those relationships that mean the most, particularly one like marriage that God would use over and over again, we get away from what God had intended to happen. I remember many years ago when I was a Lowe's employee, I, I was a, a, a manager for them. I had a guy come to me, and he goes, John, I need to be a full-time employee. I'm like, man, everybody wants full-time employment. I just don't have it. I said, what's going on in your world? He goes, well, my wife and I are going to get divorced. And, and because we're going to get divorced, I'm going to have to pay child support and do all these different things, so I need full-time employment. So suddenly his problem became my problem. 
and he thought I was the solution for what was going on. I looked right at him, and I said, man, I, I love you, dude. You're a great worker. I appreciate you, but I'm going to tell you something. Any man that will quit his wife will quit his job, and I really don't care to elevate you to a new level if this is the level of commitment you have in the most important relationship that you have on this earth. I'm not going to elevate that. Just imagine for a second what's going on in our world when we exchange our morality, when we exchange the, our trust in God, when, we, when we, we go around accepting evil as good and we're calling the wrong things the right things, and they're absolutely not. And then we keep looking back at God and just saying, you know what, God, if you just really do a little bit more for me, if you just fix my little situation, my little problem, maybe I wouldn't do all those things. And God is saying, look, I gave you one rule in the garden. You couldn't figure it out. I gave you ten commandments, and most of those had to do with how you relate to me and how you relate to one another. Then I gave you two commandments when Jesus came down. and said, love me and love others. And right now, you're not loving others if all you're trying to figure out is what you can get from them. And if you're not loving others because they're not giving you what you need to satisfy you, how could you possibly be loving God that way? Because he's not acting the way you want him to. You're not persevering. There's no toughness in you at all. Some of you of the older generation, you say that a lot about the younger generation today. And I would tell you that that's absolutely true. We've become so pragmatic in every little problem that we have that as soon as we can't figure out what to do, we go to the next Google search and we hit that one and we try to figure out a little problem next. And if, as long as we don't just persevere and keep pushing through, we go to something else until something finally works. We've become so pragmatic in trying to fix our, our, our little problems that we don't back up long enough and say, you know what? I may have actually created this problem myself. And you know what the answer is? I need to give this back to God. I need to confess to him. I need to ask him to forgive me. We're not perseverers. If 2020 has shown us anything so far, it's that when the tough get going, we don't. We just kind of sit back and let life happen to us. I'm not saying we need to all go out and protest and do all these other things. I'm just saying that for a whole lot of us, myself included, there are days that I'd rather just quit than fight the good fight. There are days that I look at God and just say, if you really love me, you wouldn't have all these difficulties and all these issues. I do that. I'm just going to confess that this morning. But I also confess that I just hear God speaking in my heart and saying, you don't really believe that, do you? You don't actually think that's true, do you? Have I really been that unjust to you? Have I really been that unfavorable and unloving to you? Tell me how I've changed in the midst of your circumstances. Truth is, he hasn't. So how do we persevere in hard times like this? We talked about that in 1 Peter, but I want to show you three quick things this morning before we go of how we persevere in times like this. First of all, I think we have to allow God to restore us. We are looking for love and acceptance and, and relationships, and we're looking for all these voids in our life to be filled by someone else instead of being filled by God. And we must allow him to restore us. Joel 2.25 is one of those great passages where the people are struggling because they recognize that the creator of all things who has power over all nature and all the bugs and all these other things has destroyed all their crops. I don't know about you, but when you get somebody's attention, a good way to do that is make them hungry and dependent upon you, right? Joel 2.25 says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, the, my great army, which I sent among you. If we, if we look at God and say, my circumstances are what they are because you did this to me, it could be a true statement. It's very true that God could have said, yes, I am punishing my children because they violated my rules, and as their holy father, I have the right to do so. But I also have the power and authority to restore them. And so when I took away all these other things from them, 
when I sent the locusts in to destroy their crops. It was so that they would be more dependent upon me, not upon the work of their own hands. And because of such, I will restore you because, let's face it, no one else has the power and ability to do so. Now, it may not look like you want it to look. It didn't look that way for Jacob and all of his sons when the famine was in the land and they find themselves in Egypt to the brother that they all sold into slavery who had figured out because of his father's teaching to store up all this grain in Egypt to get ready for the famine. God said, I know what's going to happen down the road and I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to protect you. I am the one who is going to actually restore you. Many of you right now have so many, many issues with God. To be perfectly honest with you, you need his restoration more than you need anything else. God, I don't need you to take care of my finances. I don't need you to buy me a new car. I, don't need, I, need, I just need your restoration. I need to know God, and I need to affirm God. And I need to spend time with you, understanding that you are my provider and my sustainer. And no matter how hard times are in a broken world who has violated the covenant that you made with each and every one of us, you're still good, and you can fix this for me. And you want to. Now, I'm not talking prosperity gospel. Please don't misunderstand me. What I'm talking is God's not going to give us riches. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna empower us with the riches of his presence. He's going to love us in such a way that we don't need all those other things because he's provided for our every need. I think the second thing we can do is that we can allow God to re-identify us. Last week there was a note that I made that I didn't make uh, uh, in the sermon, but I want to make it now. Are we satisfied with who we are, or are we satisfied with who God wants us to be? And I think it's important for us to understand that who we say we are, especially in a public forum, and who we act and who we, how we behave is not necessarily how God sees us. And to be honest with you, probably not how he sees us at all, because he sees everything in our very heart. But God actually should be our identity marker. God had a habit throughout the Old Testament particularly of changing names whenever he did something great in someone's life. When he changed Abram to Abraham, when he changed Sari to Sarah, when he changed Jacob to Israel, it was because they had accepted him and his promises, and he had allowed God to work in their lives so that he could identify who they were and how they would interact with the rest of humanity. Have you allowed God to rename you, to identify you? Because for so many of us, and I hear this a lot in church world, and I have my whole life, we talk a whole lot about, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, and I just need my sins forgiven. You know what? It's true. We are all sinners and fall short of God's glory. But here's the truth, that once we are forgiven of those sins, Jesus calls us saints, not sinners. And because we're saints, not sinners, we're in a process of being perfected, and we're still going to commit sins, but those sins no longer identify us. Back in those days, whenever the woman would come before Jesus, whenever they, they, they called her and said, uh, Jesus, this woman's been caught in adultery. So what, what must we do? Well, the law says you have to stone her. Now, I always find that story interesting because we never see the man she was caught in adultery with. Why didn't we stone him too? I mean, after all, the law says we ought to, right? But instead, all these people are standing up. And Jesus, instead of answering directly, he just basically says, all of you out there, as soon as you're ready to confess that you're better than she is in every aspect of life, and that you yourselves are without sin, please pick up a rock and cast the first sin. And not a one of them did. And Jesus looked at her. And he said two things. One, woman, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? For so many of us, we bring accusers upon ourselves because we like to be identified with our sin, and we have to stop doing that. We have to stop embracing it, stop wallowing in it, stop being identified by the sins that we commit. 
I appreciate 12-step programs. I appreciate uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and all those things. But one of the things that I personally have always struggled with is someone who has not been controlled by alcohol for 30 years still standing up and professing to be an alcoholic. That's not who you are. It's what you did. And God, if he's truly forgiven you, then you can work past that. That doesn't mean you don't need those 12 steps still to make sure you stay on that because you probably do. But I don't look at you as this alcoholic from 30 years ago because I've never seen you take a drink. I look at you as, uh, as a forgiven child of God. That's how Jesus looked at you. And so we have to be careful about how we're identified. And God's the one who wants to re-identify us. He wants to turn us from sinners to saints. And he does that with a covenant, a promise, a long-lasting covenant of his blood and forgiveness for our sins. And finally, the third thing I want to show you is that we have to allow God to resurrect us. Now, you may be looking at me a little bit strange because this might be language that we don't often use around here. What do you mean resurrect us? You are dead to your sins as long as you're continuing to stay in them. You are dead to them, and there is no coming back from them except for what Christ does for you. And it's only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that our sins can possibly be forgiven. There are no longer sacrifices that are adequate to forgive our sins. There is no more atoning for us that is adequate for us. Because we need the resurrection power of Jesus. Just as we celebrated the Lord's Supper last week, when we do so, we commemorate not his birth, which we're going to celebrate in a few days, but his death and his resurrection and his power over sin and death. And we need him to resurrect us. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sins. Honestly, right here for just a second. Are you free from your sins? Or are they still defining you? Are they still captioning you? Do they still have you ensnared in such a way that the shame of the sin, the ridicule of the, sh- of the sin, actually does more to identify you than the forgiveness and the one who is to forgive you? Because we have violated a great covenant with God who shed the blood of his one and only son for each and every one of us. We are not right relationship with him. And this is what was going on in Malachi's time. Is the people were saying until God starts acting the way we want him to act, we're not going to respond to him appropriately. Folks, I've got to be honest with you. If you've ever seen a child do that with a parent, it doesn't work out good for the kid. It just doesn't. God is very much parental in a lot of things that he does. Well, I'm just going to keep pushing against mom and dad until I finally break them. You know what? You may actually do it, kids. You may actually break mom and dad, but you're also going to break the relationship with mom and dad, the ones who brought you into this world, who did so and continue to provide for you. And when you resent and you push back and you tell them that they're fools and you don't listen to their advice and you don't see their godly wisdom and you don't become the godly offspring that, that God wanted to see happen out of a marriage, let me tell you, it just goes south from there further and further and further on. And what you'll need is for someone to restore you, someone to re-identify you instead of just some mouthy, bratty kid who pushes against their parents. That's going to be a kid who loves mom and dad and that he's just great. And he's doing what he's supposed to do because he's walking with God and he's honoring mom and dad. It's the first commandment with a promise. We need to be resurrected from our sins instead of watching our sins kill us. And that's what's happening right now in our world. And it's not a new thing. It was happening in Malachi's day, 400 years before John the Baptist was born. It's happening in our day today. And we need to die to self and be resurrected to new life in Christ Jesus. 
through the resurrection of him, we are washed by his blood of a covenant that was made for us. And so when Malachi was talking to the people about how they had left the wife of their youth, what he said was is that when everything was good on the honeymoon, when God was there with you and everything was the way it was supposed to be, and you got a little bit further down the road and things just aren't like they're supposed to be anymore, when he leaves the toilet seat up, this is not the man that I married. When she burns food she didn't used to burn, this is not the woman you gave me, God. For those of you who have been married for any significant amount of time, you realize that all those foolish things you forget and you throw out the window because it's not about the actions that they do, it's about the person that they are and the gift that God has given the two of you. And he wants to be right in the middle of that. Malachi and his people of the day, they were missing out on this. The covenant relationship of God was so important, and we have broken the covenant of God. And the only way we're going to come back is that we renew the covenant that Jesus made with us to die for our sins, forgive us of our sins, and to allow us to walk free of those sins and no longer be identified with them. That's the only way we're going to do that, and we're in a lost and dying world right now who needs to hear that truth. Not that, okay, yeah, you can keep doing what you're doing. It's okay. It's not okay. It's not. You cannot continue to thumb your nose at God's law and think everything's going to be okay. Because when it comes crashing down, not if, but when it comes crashing down, he's still going to be there willing to restore you even though you don't deserve it. That's the love of a father. That's why when they ask all these questions of God, why would you do this? How would you do this? How do you let this happen? It's because if I gave you what you really deserved, none of you would survive. In the person of Jesus Christ that we'll celebrate here in a few weeks, grace and mercy come together in one, and that's what humanity needs. And until he comes back to restore all of us, to redeem all of us, to resurrect the dead, before he comes back to do that, we must learn to persevere because the king is coming, and when he comes, he will rule absolutely. And he wants to rule in our hearts now, so it's not this big surprise later. Because for those of you who think they know him but don't, there will be no ruling. There will be none at all. It will be an unhappy time for those who are not in Christ Jesus. And it will be an eternal unhappy time in a real place called heaven. And that is not God's plan for us. That is not why he made a covenant with us. That's not why he forgave us of our sins. He wants to restore us. He wants to resurrect us. He wants to live in us. And we know things are tough, but he wants us to persevere. And I pray we'll learn ways to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, we bless you, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he has done for us. We thank you for how he loves us. Father, I confess we have, we have broken the deal. We have violated the covenant. And Lord, by those terms, we should, we should lose our lives according to the, the agreement that we made. But 